Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. Welcome to today's DBSA Real Recovery Podcast featuring Darby Penny. Darby Penny is a leader in the human rights movement for people with psychiatric disabilities. She is presented nationally and internationally on a variety of mental health issues from a consumer survivor perspective. A founder of the International Network Toward Alternatives and Recovery, she is currently a senior research associate with Advocates for Human Potential Incorporated. With Peter Stasny, MD, she is co-author of The Lives They Left Behind, Suitcases from a State Hospital Attic. Darby is a 2007 fellow and nonfiction literature of the New York Foundation for the Arts, and we're very happy to welcome welcome her today. Oh, thank you very much, Cindy. Before we discuss the suitcase project and your book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the personal journey that led you to this project? Um, sure. You know, I, I kind of think of the um, suitcase project in a way as kind of um, a happy accident. Um, happy for me, not necessarily happy for the people who owned the suitcases. Um, when, in the late 1990s, I was working as a director of recipient affairs at the New York State Office of Mental Health. And one day I was at a commissioner's cabinet meeting, and some people from the New York State Museum and the New York State Archives came to this meeting to discuss the whole idea of documenting the history of mental health within New York State. Um, and not that many people seemed all that interested in the topic. Um, I was particularly interested because I know that history is usually told, you know, from the official perspective and hardly ever told from the perspective of, um, you know, the low people on the totem pole, um, which would be those of us um, who were diagnosed with, with mental health issues. Um, and so I was, was listening avidly to this discussion and trying to figure out a way to, to get our perspective into the discussion of history when one of the curators happened to mention that they had found about 400 suitcases in the attic at the state hospital that had been closed in 1995 and um, that he, in fact, had been able to save them and brought them back to the museum's warehouse where they had kind of just been sitting for the last several years. And so um, he said to me later, you know, your eyes got as big as saucers. And he said, no one else looked <laughs> that interested, but you were just looked obviously fascinated. So... Um, he said to me, you know, if you want, I've never opened any of them, but if you want, you can um, come over to the warehouse and we'll start opening them together. And so the next day, that's what I did. And um, I think we were both, you know, completely blown away by what we found, which was um, really the remnants of the lives of hundreds of people who had been committed to this place, Willard State Hospital, any place from the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, who had, who had packed their belongings um, the things that were most important to them as they went away to be um, committed to this hospital. Um, and most of them never saw this stuff again, and most of them were, were not released and were never or were never reunited with their belongings. Um, but we were, we had these and were, were able to start piecing together people's stories from the things that they had left behind. I'm, I know we talk about a happy accident. I, I feel the same way in terms of happy accident, in terms of just being having the privilege to be able to find out about this project. I think it's so moving. And um, I was hoping, um, I'm, I'm hoping everyone will log on to the suitcaseexhibit.org and check it out. But um, can you preface for 
our listeners a little bit about what the project, what happened since that, you know, that fateful day at the, the warehouse where you were opening up the lives of 400-some individuals. Well, you know, it's, it's just really been been fascinating and been real, uh, quite an honor to be able to to have access into these individuals' lives and to try to to share their stories with people. Um, the, the place itself, Willard State Hospital, was the, the second oldest state hospital in New York. It was started in 1869, and it was really way, way out in the middle of nowhere, and it was, was made as a place of last resort. I mean, it was a place where people were sent when there was considered to have no hope for them. And so, um, you know, people were packed up there and, and sent and kept in this huge institution for, for, for decades, most of these folks for you know, 20, 30, 50, even longer years and um, spent their lives there. So what happened with Craig and I, Craig uh, Williams, who was the curator, and I started opening the suitcases and started realizing there was just an amazing amount that you could learn about a person just by seeing what they had felt was important to them to pack to go away on this journey. Um, and then my colleague, Peter Stasny, who is a psychiatrist and somebody who's been interested in alternatives to the traditional medical model and ways for the, um, the psychiatric community to work with, with those of us who've been diagnosed um, as, in a more collegial way. Um, Peter was real interested in this, and I know Peter was interested in the history of psychiatry uh, from a lot of perspectives. So he, he was invited into the project, and we also brought in a photographer, Lisa Rinsler, who... Um, it's just a remarkable photographer who was able to photograph the belongings of these people in a way that I think um, just made them all look special and made made you understand the, the emotional impact of the belongings of these individuals. Um, and so for the next several years, um, the four of us um, worked together at, as a team to go through the, um, the suitcase belongings, and um, Craig had volunteers and students who helped catalog the materials that were in each of the suitcases. Um, Lisa photographed them, and um, Peter and I did a lot of work tracking down who these folks were, where they came from, um, reading the, the letters, the diaries, looking at the photographs that they left behind. We also had permission to uh, look at their medical records, so we were were able, in a lot of cases, to get access to the um, the intake interviews that people did when they came to this facility. So we didn't just hear the doctor's story of who these people were and why we were there, but we got to hear most of the folks in their own words tell their story and their history and what led them to that day where they, they went behind asylum walls. Um, and so over the years, we, um, well, we thought there was, there were, we had to figure out ways to communicate this with people. And one of the things that we did was, work with Craig Williams at the State Museum in, in Albany, New York, to create uh, a, a very large exhibit that used the suitcases of 12 individuals, um, each of whom were given their own little room where their suitcase belongings were displayed. And we um, had some panels of text that talked about their lives. But mostly it was, you know, through the the actual objects that they had, had brought with them, the, the personal photographs, the books, um, the mementos, the clothing, the the jewelry, the um, the dishes, and just um, the things that that make up the the everyday stuff of people's lives. And 
I think one of the things that we discovered too is that all of these people were um they were all they were all interesting extraordinary people um we kind of didn't search out you know who's the most interesting person that's who we're going to write about it just everyone we came across had you know a, a fascinating and usually pretty heartbreaking story of how they ended up at Willard State Hospital it must have been a tremendously difficult challenge to take the 400 some suitcase and narrow it down to the 12 individuals for the exhibit and the people that were featured in the book. Um, yes, although that actually sounds a little more overwhelming than it was because there were 400 and some suitcases. Um, however, at least half of them were empty. Um, and maybe another 100 had one or two items in them, but not enough that you could get a sense of, of who that person really was. And then there were a number of people that had quite a few suitcases. In fact, um, one of the people that we wrote about, um, the woman who's um, named Margaret, who was a nurse um, who, who came from Scotland, Margaret actually had 18 suitcases, trunks, boxes, and, and other kinds of um, things with her belongings in them. So um, what we did was try to narrow it down to looking at suitcases that had enough belongings in them that you would get you know, kind of a visceral sense of what who this person was, what was important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, still, it was it, it it was hard as we we narrowed things down. But um, and in some places we weren't able to find the people's medical records, so we weren't able to follow up with them. And so, in other places, we couldn't really get any um, background information on where the person came from before they got there. So, um, as, as we we went through the the belongings themselves and the records and the kind of genealogical research we were doing at the same time. You know, some people just sort of happened to fall out into the group that were were first. Um, the display was built around in the state museum, and then a smaller group of those people are who we wrote about in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it was great to be able to see the 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 um, not only the documentation from the from the doctors, as you mentioned, and how those changes. <laughs> it, it struck me how often you had different doctors. <laughs> Every single time it was like starting over yeah. again, patient almost. Yeah. And um, so many different doctors and so many different treatments, and therefore kind of starting over again. But and then also the letters that you were able to collect from friends or family members or communications that the individuals may have um, sent to others within the community. It's just truly fascinating. You'd mentioned that um, you kind of had a visceral response in terms of um, some of the people that you had uh, uh, profiled or when you were going through the um, suitcases themselves. But this experience for you must have been a, quite a visceral ex- experience. Um, um, I know that the, the time it took from the time you, you know, discovered the suitcases through the time when the exhibit actually opened its doors to, I believe, over 600,000 people in the spring mm-hmm. of 2004, that alone was five years. And subsequently from that then, there was the book, and the research involved in the book and the additional component of that. And so this has been quite the journey for you, Darby. Can you um, share with us a little bit about how that changed over the course of the years and your perspective and how this has struck you emotionally from the beginning to where you are now? You know, that's a great question. I mean, it's certainly been, um, you know, an emotional roller coaster, I think, for all of us involved because, you know, on the the one hand, when you – when you think of the, the tragedy and the wasted lives of these folks, um, it's, it can be devastating, depressing, um, it can make you angry. 
on the other hand, there's something that's sort of curiously, and I notice that this response from a lot of people, despite the fact that this is really hard and, and, and sad material, that in some ways people seem to find it uplifting in an odd sort of way. And for me, what that where that comes from is um, the ability to memorialize these people and to, to bring their f- stories forward so other people can hear about them so that they're no longer nameless, faceless mental patients, which is really what they had become, you know, during the time that their their material was not known to people. So there is something inspiring for us about being able to um, bring these people's stories to light and to remind people that it's um, that they're just really the tip of the iceberg, that they are re- representative of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people across the world sure. whose lives were, were basically taken from them in a way when they were institutionalized for decades and decades. Very true. Yeah, I know the stories that are profiled in the book. Um, I've not had, unfortunately, the opportunity to see the exhibit. I'm hoping someday I, I do get that opportunity, but the stories in the book I thought were really powerful. And I know one of the stories I was particularly struck by was Lawrence's story, um, who was the grave tender at... Um, at the Willard State Hospital in New York for just so many, for decades actually. And I was struck not only because of his personal experience, but what you ultimately find out is the profound effect his death had on how all the individuals who were to be buried at Willard since his death were, was a dramatic change. And, uh, what a, what a powerful force that Lawrence had on so many lives. Um, yeah. so I found that particularly, um, particularly moving for me as well or intriguing as well. And I was wondering if there were any other um, ter- uh, individuals within the uh, within the book that had struck a particular chord with you. Um, yeah, cer- you know, certainly. Although sometimes you feel like when people ask that question, it's like you know, asking a parent who's their favorite child. That's true, that's true. I didn't mean to do that. That's not the intention. Um, but, you know, I... For a lot of different reasons, you know, I resonated with different parts of different people's stories. But mm-hmm. I think in particular, there's a, a woman named Madeline who was um, a French woman. She was um, she was born into wealth in Paris in, like, 1896. And she came to the U.S. after World War One, and uh, lived in New York City for um, a while. And, and actually, during the Great Depression, she, like a lot of other immigrant women, um, you know, became unemployed, and she was single. She had no um, family here and no social support. And, and we saw that story over and over again, actually, that a lot of women who were um, strong, independent women who had come to, to America to make a life for themselves from Europe, when the Great Depression hit, they were left with no resources, and uh, many of them ended up in state hospitals. And Madeline was one of those people. And I think the thing about Madeline that I particularly like is that of all the people who we wrote about, um, she was the only one that there was really evidence that that she basically never gave up. Um, She was completely outraged to be dragged away to a a hospital, and she thought she didn't belong there, and she demanded to be released. And she was there for 35 or more years, and yet she never stopped demanding her release, and she never stopped saying, I don't belong here, this isn't me. Um, I want to go back to my life, um, let me out of here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, um, that kind of, some people would call it stubbornness. Um, I could really relate to that personally. Yeah. And, and I think it was, it, was, it was just, 
you know, there was something encouraging about her that despite, you know, everything that happened to her and despite the freedoms that were taken from her, that she still believed in herself and she never gave up. Although, I think that's a lesson for all of us, you know. <laughs> it is, although I have to say that that didn't do her a whole lot of good, in fact, um, because she, in fact, did stay in the mental health system and died died there as an, a very old woman. Um, but there is something inspiring about her belief in herself mm-hmm. and her, her not giving up on herself, even though everyone else had. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's inspiring, and um, hopefully the times have changed so that maybe our voices could be heard more um, today. And that brings me to the question of life lessons um, from this experience. And if you could share with us what you think the biggest lesson that we can all learn from the Willard State Hospital and the lives of its residents. Um, Most of those profiled in your book and those without a voice, um, again, those are those empty suitcases that Mm -hmm. didn't contain anything. Well, you know, I, I think it's it's so remarkable to look back at all those people's stories and to listen to their own voices and to listen to their story of how they ended up in the hospital. And, you know, you, you see people kind of slapped with these diagnoses that change with the fashion every 10 years. The doctor will go back and like, oh, this is, you know, the diagnosis du jour is something else, and the people get slapped with a new diagnosis. Um, but if you actually listen to the people's stories of what happened to them personally and how their lives were interrupted and what what was going on that led them to this, um, for me it's just the idea of how how we're all more alike than than we are different. And one of the, the things that really impressed me when when the um, exhibit was up at the New York State Museum. And sometimes I would go and walk around at lunchtime and just kind of watch people and listen to them making comments about the exhibit, which was really interesting because people talk to strangers about it, which I think is really unusual in museums. And one of the most common things I heard people say was, oh, my God, that could have been me. And I felt like, you know, if if that's what people bring away from this, that was extremely important for for us because... um, once people look at somebody with a psychiatric diagnosis and recognize their shared humanity with that person, they can never look at us the same way again. They can never look at us as the other anymore. They recognize that, you know, we're all part of the human family. And so for me, I think that was, was the biggest message that I'd hoped we could bring across um, from, from this work. Um, yeah, and I think you said that idea that you brought up too, as well as in terms of uh, it's this idea of digging deeper <laughs> and and um, that there's so much to this. Uh, and I hope that, uh, I would certainly hope that the mental health system has learned that lesson and will continue to learn that lesson in terms of um, digging deeper. That there are sometimes it's circumstances, not a, an illness, that bring us to these places. So um, thank you for that lesson. I hope we can all... I think each one of us, as you talked about, will get a different lesson from the exhibit, from the book. Um, I think there's just many, many powerful lessons to be um, to be learned within this this whole story and journey. Um, and I guess the next question relates to what's the next step of the journey, um, not only for the exhibit, but also what would you hope the next step would be for individuals that experience the book or experience the exhibit. What would your hope be that people could take away, and what action could they, um, what action could they 
um, pursue as a result of participating in the book or the exhibit? For me, one of the most important things that we need to consider is that um, it's just really think about the extent to which things are different today and, and are not different today. Um, because part of the time, you know, part of me feels like things are, are more different um, today in style than in substance. I mean, because I think we all know that there are no longer, at least in the U.S., there are no longer hundreds of thousands of people locked away in these big institutions for decades and decades and decades, although there still are people. And, we, and I think we can't forget that, that there are still our brothers and sisters who are locked for decades in state hospitals that, that are not getting out. But there's many, many fewer of those folks than there used to be. But on the other hand, you know, how much has changed in terms of what control those folks really have over their lives? I mean, there are people um, really who've been trans-institutionalized, whether they're in prisons and jails or whether they're in what at least in New York State are called adult homes but are in fact institutions of 250 to 350 people that um, where people are allegedly living in the community, but in fact it's not that much different from living in a state hospital. And, you know, I think that we still have a long way to go, and I think that it's, um, it's easy these days for people in the mental health field to kind of congratulate themselves on um, how far we've come, but I think... The reality for many people whose lives are still controlled by the mental health system is that, you know, they may be living in what's nominally the community now, but their life isn't all that much different than if they were sitting on a day room in a state hospital. And I, I think we need to, to keep that in mind that there's still a long way to go. And I think that the exhibit and the book um, really does send, again, a lot of messages and is certainly nothing can come from it but being able to implement some elements of change. So I want to thank you and your co-partners in this endeavor in terms of bringing it forward to um, the public. And um, I hope everyone has the opportunity to minimally, I would encourage everyone to get online and check out the suitcaseexhibit.org, as well as um, Darby's book, The Lives They Left Behind, Suitcases from a State Hospital Attic, is available um, I believe from that website itself as well as on dbsalliance.org slash bookstore. And I'm thrilled to be able to share that Darby will be sharing her experience and uh, much of the uh, exhibit and uh, documentary component of that at the DBSA 2009 National Conference in Indianapolis this September. So if anyone has the opportunity to join us there and uh, speak with um, Darby in person, that would be fantastic. And I would really um, encourage everyone to do that. And um, again, just want to take this opportunity to thank you, Darby, for the project and for being with us here today. And of course, for sharing this story at the National Conference. Um, I'm going to give well, some thank emails. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I just think it's a tremendous program. I feel very lucky to have um, learned about the project and the book, and um, I hope others have the opportunity because I know it will be an inspiration and a message both of you said. It's a difficult subject, but I do think it encourages hope, and I do think it will encourage change. And uh, I think it has a very, very powerful message to send. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk about the suitcase people. So I'm looking forward to the conference, too. Thanks so much. Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And, again, those email, I'm sorry, those website addresses 
is the suitcaseexhibit.org and dbsalliance.org slash conference2009 or dbsalliance.org slash bookstore. Thank you again, Darby. This has been a DBSA Real Recovery Podcast. This has been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help. Thank you.